one of the coolest things has been for us after working on this product line for over 10 years is to actually have it out in the hands of our customers and see what they're doing with it. So you've got companies that are using it to just transform the way they're utilizing and driving their data infrastructure, SAP HANA, Oracle Database. They're certainly using it for that, but we're also seeing some fun, cool startup that are saying, now that I understand how storage and memory, that hierarchy can better Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the privilege of being joined in the studio by Lisa Spellman. Now, Lisa is Corporate Vice President and General Manager of Intel's Xeon and Memory Group. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Des. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about a couple of very exciting topics today in the technology space. We're going to get some updates from Lisa with regard to what's happening inside Intel responses to the the global pandemic, in particular COVID-19. We're going to look into some of Intel's latest news from within the data platform group. We're going to discuss the whole topic of accelerating analytics and look at the journey from core to the cloud and into the edge and, and why that matters. We're going to delve into some of the solutions-focused areas around software and customer insights. Then we're going to look at where we're going with AI and analytics over the next decade. But before we dive into some of these great topics, I wonder if we could just get a little background on yourself personally, kind of where you're from originally and then some of the things that inspired you and your career and academic background that sort of brought you to this great role. Because I understand you're currently based in Portland and uh, Oregon in the USA, but uh, is that where you originally grew up? You know, I am born and raised here, and it's the strangest thing, but every aunt, uncle, cousin, grandparent, family member that I have lives in within two counties of the Portland, Oregon area. And so I have a pretty strong base here. So I, I, it wasn't such a surprise that I uh, came back, but I got lucky that the Portland area is Intel's largest base of employees. So it worked out quite well for me. Was there any one thing or any one person that inspired you to sort of pursue this whole career and particularly in technology and and business? You know, I wouldn't say that it was necessarily a drive specifically towards technology, but as far as inspiration, I take a lot from my mom, who is really just brilliant. I learned a lot from her. And one of the things that actually, I should say both my parents, but my mom drove between my brothers and sisters and I was there are no limits. You're just going to do what you want to do. So get out there and do that thing. And uh, just a very strong uh, drive and push towards achieving what you see or want as your future. And a real big focus on the same expectations or drive for us all to have career achievements, growth and experiences for both the girls and the boys. You know, I have friends, we all have experiences where as a woman in business or a woman in technology, you've had to overcome some different areas of bias or fight through. And it's not like technology is special. That can be true in a lot of different industries. But having that foundational background from your family and your upbringing that the same expectations were there and that same reality was ours to create, I think was very powerful motivator for my career achievement, even in a very uh, male-dominated world. You've had an amazing 18 years uh, with Intel. You've held exciting roles from finance through to IT and product management marketing. And now in your current role, corporate vice president and general manager of Xeon and Memory Group, I wonder if we can sort of get an insight into kind of what, what is a day in the life of Lisa Spellman like? And, and I guess there's two versions of that, isn't there? Because there's pre-COVID-19 and then during COVID-19. But 
before the pandemic hit us, what were some of the regular daily challenges that you sort of took on and what were some of the things that you faced on a regular basis in this challenging role? Yeah, you know, I've been super lucky at Intel and I've had some help navigating to have multiple careers within the same company. So you hit on some of them. I've spent time in finance, IT, product management, marketing, sales, technical sales, having a chance to manage engineering, manage business teams. I've done an international assignment. And so I know I've been at the same place for a long time. And that probably sounds so crazy to some people, but it's been almost like different companies inside that same structure. And I guess that's one of the benefits of also being at, at such a large company. But that same family that I referred to as all being very well co-located does look at me like I'm crazy when they say, oh, what are you up to tomorrow? And I say, uh, flying to China, flying to London, flying <laughs> to wherever. And they think, oh my gosh, what a big trip. And I say, huh? You know, I just threw the bag together in a few minutes and out the door I go. So obviously, as you said, pre-COVID-19, I did spend a fair amount of time on the road, just meeting with customers, engaging with communities, meeting technologists, staying on top of what's going on in the world, out talking about our products. I do, you know, a fair amount of um, external speaking engagements and just participating in the ecosystem as we have this cool opportunity to drive ideas into silicon and then into people's hands. You know, there's no secret the world's going through a once-in-a-lifetime challenge right now with a global pandemic. How's that impacted you personally and professionally at the moment? You know, it's hard. Obviously, there's pros and cons, but as one of my colleagues said, it's not just working from home. It's working from home during a pandemic. And like you said, you've got everything on the, the doorstep all at once with kids needing attention for their school and work demands coming in. And we say, oh, geez, well, at least you don't have the burden of travel. And I'm realizing, man, a couple hours on a plane gave me a chance to uh, catch up on a few things and not be uncalled. And so that demand for that ever presence does get challenging. So I've been working with my team for all of us to try to figure out how to put breaks into our day. And just last Friday, we all agreed to collectively take a mental health and recharge day. And the best thing we did was that we coordinated it across not just my team, but a couple of our other close partner teams and said, let's just all do this together. So there's no pressure for meetings. The email isn't piling in and people really can disconnect and enjoy a longer weekend. So I, I think we're working on the adjustment, but I love the extra time to be able to do things I enjoy. Like I am able to cook more than I have been. I'm not spending as much time commuting. I'm able to exercise more regularly during the week. So it's not that there aren't benefits, but I miss people. And I know that I build connection with my team, with my peers, with our customers through seeing them and spending time with them, not just on a video screen. When this started, I at first was far more cautious about it and you know, the door shut all the time and then like, okay, guys, everyone stay out. Now my daughter's a regular visitor on my Zoom meetings and I just know one of these days I'm going to be doing a you know video interview on something and she's going to march right in and that'll just happen and it'll be fine. We've seen an amazing response to this global pandemic from Intel, from financial contributions through to community projects. And one thing that really excited me was you've opened up your portfolio of intellectual property to researchers and students to battle COVID-19. I wonder if you can give us some little insights on, on, on each of those little elements. Never has it been more apparent to us as Intel employees that 
we do provide critical infrastructure that the world runs on our technology. You know, every single data center, every single network, all of it is built on top of Intel technology. And then you've got all of the way digital learning is happening, all the working from home with, you know, PCs, all of that. And of course, there's other elements that um, are connected and part of that infrastructure. But the pride that Intel employees are taking in that role in the world really shining through and you see people being so creative and going just above and beyond to keep projects on track to continue to drive to the next thing and it's almost like we all have this new more real sense of the way that our technology and our products and our solutions can actually truly impact lives instead of just viewing it as the next product in the you know long list or storied history of the company. Well, there's a lot to contend with. That's a very positive energy that I see flowing through our employees and our teams. And I know I've certainly felt it myself. In addition to that, we have been really working and thinking hard about what is the role that Intel could effectively play in helping drive towards resolution of the COVID-19 situations. When it first hit, you know, we're a global company, so it didn't hit. Intel, when it came to the U.S., it hit Intel when it started to spread throughout China and in Asia. And, you know, so we've been working on this since the the very beginning. And we started out with some initial investments in high-performance computing infrastructure for genome sequencing of the virus, partnering with some of the labs in China to help get a you know head start on understanding what we're dealing with. And then we put together a $50 million pandemic response technology fund to help drive not only solutions focused towards genome sequencing, finding origins, working towards vaccines, but also just the management of whether it's contact tracing or life in the ICU, more distance between doctor and patient, but still being able to effectively gather symptoms, all those types of things. So it's not just around a cure or vaccine or resolution, but also in the management of it, because I think we understood from kind of an early on standpoint with our view of world connectedness that this wasn't going to be a quick resolution. We were going to be battling this for a while. But you've also done some amazing stuff with partners that I've seen from, as you said, not just the supercomputer technology space and the health engineering space, but also down to partners who have made changes all the way into the ICUs, looking at ways of getting data out of the intensive care units and putting them into dashboards and platforms where people out of the ICU can now get some insights and make decisions on what's happening in there. I wonder if you can share some insights around some of that, because I think it was Medical Informatics Corp, I think it was, with their sick day platform. Yes. And, you know, this is really about helping hospitals as quickly as needed expand their ICU bed capacity. And this isn't through building new infrastructure. It's turning, you know, infrastructure they already have into ICU capable type of hospitalization and increasing the efficiency of service within those ICUs. So it's allowing your medical professionals to scale and scale more safely. So it it gives the opportunity for Again, more technology built into the vitals gathering and the patient monitoring without requiring every time for the medical professionals, whether doctor, nurses, others, respiratory therapists, to be 
in the room. And so it allows them to increase their capacity, increase the consistency of the monitoring, and also just not expose to minimize the exposure that uh, medical professionals face and their day-to-day effort to serve those patients to the best of their ability. So anything you can do to help keep them safe has an added benefit as well, of course. It's not that these are like crazy complex things. They just haven't necessarily been born of this much necessity. And so, you, you know, we've both seen things talking about how this whole, the work from home, the need for this type of expansion and capability and better data and understanding has kicked digital transformation into the future by some people, anywhere between 10 and 50 years, I hear people saying. So it, it's real. You've had some amazing announcements of late. Could you maybe just give us some insights and in some of the latest announcements, then we can sort of delve into how they've played into the new market? We have, for the past several years, been really looking at what Intel does and has the capability and the, the worldview to do around the movement of data, the storage of data, and the processing of data, and helping our customers navigate that landscape as they deliver performance capability, digital services, all the next things their business needs to advance on top of that foundation. And so when you look at all of the different problems, challenges, everything that each use case requires, it comes back down to, I have a movement challenge, I have a storage challenge, I have a, a processing challenge. And so we've been building out the portfolio to help our customers address those. And so, you know, in each year, each generation, we're continuing to add to that portfolio and just drive a, you know, relentless pursuit of advancements so that our customers don't ever face where technology is holding them back. What we um, are just announcing today on the data-centric space, and and, um, this is really focused on our enterprise customers and our cloud service provider customers and our network infrastructure customers and how they have a new generation. It's our third generation of our Xeon scalable processors that we're putting new advancements in and giving them, again, just additional um, capabilities and performance enhancements. And, And one of the big areas which you touched on for a second there is the continued drive we have to add artificial intelligence acceleration and capabilities into the processor products. And the reason we're doing that is because we fundamentally see that every workload across that data pipeline is going to have artificial intelligence either built into the application or fundamentally as a cornerstone of the service that's being delivered by our customers. So it's becoming a a really important way to drive compute and drive that technology capability. We've also added some complementary technologies into the portfolio. We've continued to advance our FPGAs, which is our programmable uh, solutions that allow customers to customize silicon even after they've purchased it. So they still have the ability to make changes and tune it very specifically to the work they're trying to do. And we've added to our storage and memory product lines with our second generation of our Optane persistent memory and some new SSDs that really complement out that memory and storage hierarchy portfolio. So everything I said about how the work at Intel and the creativity of our employees to keep products coming out and going is really evident in this uh, portfolio update that we're talking about today. You know, it's, it's so exciting seeing this all coming into these platforms now. There's a rapidly 
growing demand for this whole multi-purpose workloads within data centers, as well as private and public cloud environments, and 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 more so, I think, in, in hybrid versions of both of these. I, I wonder if you can give us some insights and kind of your thoughts around how Intel's approaching some of the changes you're seeing that it's bringing about in, in different industries and, and I guess globally. Yeah, you know, it goes back to a little bit about um, what I was saying that artificial intelligence as a component of workloads and is becoming so pervasive. So even if you aren't driving a specific artificial intelligence project in order to add ML to your recommendation engine and better recommend products for customers based on what they like, whether that's like your Netflix movie um, list, oh, you've watched these two, so you'll like this one, or it's your online shopping, you know, you bought these two things, so you'll naturally want this. Even if you aren't doing something specific like that, if you're just using core enterprise applications, like think of one of the you know most core enterprise applications, something like an SAP HANA, they're building artificial intelligence capability into the application to improve the performance of that capability. And so even if you aren't uniquely driving it, having your hardware foundation that those applications sit on top of capable of artificial intelligence acceleration gives you fundamentally better performance and also gives you some future proofing for how much more that's going to happen in the next couple years. So we've been approaching this, you know, data science space from, I'll call it kind of a ground up, like we do have to start with that hardware foundation um, and we invest in adding specific instructions, whether it's our um, vector neural network instructions to accelerate inference or whether it's our BFLOAT 16 instructions. And I know these are super you know, cool names that everyone's going to remember, um, but they do drive acceleration for both inference and training that can be done on Xeon CPUs. So you start with that base of the hardware foundation, but that's certainly not enough. And you know, it might surprise people to know that on top of that hardware platform, we spend you know, nearly equal investment in driving software optimizations for it. So we're on a mission to fundamentally drive a better out-of-box experience and increase the performance that can be extracted from each transistor by optimizing the software. And we're trying to meet the customers where they are. So if that's at the edge, we're developing open source software like OpenVINO to drive inference at the edge. If that's in your core data center, then whether it's TensorFlow or PyTorch or any of the other popular frameworks, we're optimizing those for Xeon as well. So it's a much more humble approach we have towards serving our customers where they're seeing their business opportunity than a, a like tops down type of approach. So if we've invested then at the hardware level, we've added on the leading software optimizations to address our customer challenges. The last thing we're doing is investing in an ecosystem of solutions built around all that optimization. This stuff isn't getting easier. The challenges for infrastructure, the challenges for IT, the challenges for business leaders are only growing more complex. And so we're trying to approach much more solution-centric view that allows for capabilities that can go as far down into very specific verticals, whether that's you know healthcare, financial services, and even sub-verticals within that, so that there are 
solutions that are ready for the market to adopt and absorb near immediately after a launch and really accelerates that time to value. So it's a pretty robust strategy and we've been at it now for a a few years. And so we're starting to see that real payoff come back as customers are finding it easier to deploy and are able to move from a first generation product to a second or third generation and see that you know increased capability that they now have in their possession and, and in their power. Now that Intel's building on-chip features that we've historically, as I said earlier, had to sort of offload to other either you know onboard capabilities or even other server platforms to to actually you know leverage and enable any form of you know, fundamental artificial intelligence. I, I wonder if you can sort of give us some insights and in how that's played into this this whole roadmap of, of bringing new technology to the market, particularly with what you're doing with Intel's third generation uh, scalable processor. I say with no irony or excess grandioseness, I truly believe we have the world's greatest ecosystem and it has been built over the 20 years of delivering Xeon and just consistently being present, adding to our instruction set capabilities and being a company that writes more lines, as a hardware company, we write more lines of software code than just about every software company in the world. Like we're serious about that and we've invested heavily to have that ecosystem but it doesn't come overnight. And so we've been on like this multi-generation journey of starting first with some very high performance computing style acceleration with AVX 512. And again, enabling greater parallel processing, but doing the work over the past several years since we brought that out in 2017 to get more and more applications enabled to recognize that acceleration in the product so that they can immediately benefit from it. Then in the next generation, in our second gen Xeon Scalable, we added DL Boost technology, but those vector uh, neural network instructions, which are driving inference. And again, you see in a single generation through the combination of hardware and software, we're able to deliver a 14x improvement. And if you were just to do hardware alone, you get somewhere closer to two or two and a half X, which is still great but you're leaving a lot of value on the table for uh, for us and for our customers. And then now with this third generation, that's where I had mentioned that um, we're adding in that Bfloat 16 capability, which is, again, just a, a continue add to the portfolio that advances in each generation um, what our customers will be able to do. And we're excited, you know, we'll start talking soon about what we have Um, coming up in our future generations as well. So I think we have a really strong roadmap that is really focused and aligned on serving those, you know, needs, not just of today, but of the future as well. I wonder if we can maybe look at just delve a little further into how the Intel uh, third generation scalable process is being tailored specifically to address, I guess, today's demanding analytics and AI workloads. What's sort of gone into the design process to tailor and to meet today's sort of traditional AI workloads that you're seeing? Yeah, you know, I'll give, um, talk about two, I will talk about the AI stuff and then I'll talk about the, you know, analytics as well. And think of those as two super important critical workloads that we see continue to challenge our customers, but also represent some of their biggest opportunities in new services and capabilities that they are trying to provide for their customers. When you look on the AI side, and I I talked a little bit about that uh, DL Boost and Bfloat 16, this helps our customers manage just the 
enormity of the data that they might be looking at. And so what it does is it allows you to deliver the near same accuracy of your training that you're doing, but with half the bits. So you are kind of increasing your throughput or you're getting, giving yourself a doubling of your throughput capability but uh, and maintaining nearly the same accuracy, but with half of the tax or overhead on the system. So it really allows for a quickening of that result and that feedback. And if you think about not just what happens in the data center or, you know, kind of a big cloud-based workload, but you also think out at the edge, that ability to be even more real-time with very similar levels of accuracy is super important to those types of services. Like I I believe you said something about you don't want to get run over by a robot, but joking aside, when you really look at those industrial type use cases, you look at factory automation, the, you know, zero latency opportunity to improve the safety of those environments is incredibly important. And people sometimes mistakenly think of what the type of compute that'll be out at the edge as being very low end compute. And we do offer and address that in our portfolio. We have very low power vision inferencing that is just super targeted at the edge, but there's also actually a lot of pretty heavy compute happening at the edge to provide that near instantaneous result without requiring the trip all the way back to the data center. So we see opportunity for expansion throughout the whole data movement uh, lifecycle, not just in the data center, not just at the edge. The other thing that we've added in the second generation that I was going to talk about for a second was that Optane persistent memory. And so this is our second generation. We were very excited to bring it out to the market in the last year or so and to get our ecosystem and customers ramping on it. And in this case, you know, kind of the speeds and feeds were enabling up to four and a half terabytes of memory per socket and delivering an average of 25% higher bandwidth than the prior generation. But what that really means is it gives our customers the opportunity to hold even more of their data in that persistent format, meaning you lose power, you don't lose access, you've got faster um, reboots and more just resiliency to your services that you've built on top of the Optane persistent memory. And one of the you know coolest things has been for us after working on this product line for over 10 years is to actually have it out in the hands of our customers and see what they're doing with it. So you've got you know amazing companies that are um, using it to just transform the way they're utilizing and driving their data infrastructure, whether, you know, again, that's a SAP HANA or an Oracle database. They're certainly using it for that, but we're also seeing some fun, cool startups that are saying, now that I understand how storage and memory, that hierarchy can better work together and more smoothly transition, and I have the ability to keep more in a persistent state at a lower cost, they're rethinking how their applications are structured. So I'm excited to see the way the ecosystem is, again, grabbing the technology and leading to new use cases and new workloads. You mentioned new FPGAs. Does this mean we're now sort of looking at bringing FPGAs into the AI realm? You know, if there's one thing I would say that's the one of the biggest transformations that Intel has um been through since I've been here, it has been our um, 
willingness and growth in not just accepting, but embracing and investing in other types of um, processing power and capability beyond just the CPU and this recognition as we've grown our own knowledge of workloads and data center infrastructure and how you set up a good network. As we've grown that, we've realized that having a actual portfolio view really does help our customers. So yes, our FPGAs are used for a bunch of different use cases. And it's that fundamental programmability that draws people to them. They're great for when your standards are still evolving or you're not sure what your final you know, application will require. And we have customers that are utilizing them for artificial intelligence acceleration. Again, that super low latency capability is really you know, an advancement for them. And we have one of our next generation ones, which is built on top of our Stratix 10 that is actually focused towards natural language processing, use cases like fraud detection. So again, getting back to that real-time artificial intelligence on large models spread across several different nodes. So it's an exciting new product. The code name of it is Primero Springs. And we're looking forward to bringing that out to the market and delivering some increased performance above that that baseline product that it's uh, built on top of. Obviously, there will still be portions of artificial intelligence that are done with um, specific acceleration in mind. And that's great. That's okay. But the improvement of having an entire workflow handled on a singular piece of silicon like Xeon that you can see, especially when the artificial intelligence needs to bounce back and forth between other parts of the workflow. So if you're just doing completely and totally separate you know, training focus. That's when acceleration that's more dedicated can make more sense. But when it's literally part of, I I use the example of a recommendation engine, you use the example of the autonomous driving. And and those are kind of both recommendations. I recommend we don't hit that obstacle. Exactly. That's going to be better (laughs) for all of us. You think about the person, the user has an experience. And then when you're calculating real time, what that recommendation is built off of it, there's a lot more that goes into that than just the artificial intelligence part of it. Having it contained on one piece of silicon and one cache hierarchy and, you know, that memory is huge. It it can make such a difference to the overall speed of the response even if you could get a better individualized point benchmark result on a a separate piece of silicon. So we really are trying to address with our portfolio that entirety of spectrum of use cases and make sure that each one of our portfolio members is best in class. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about sort of, you know, the edge demanding more and more compute closer to where that data is being generated. I wonder if you can give us some insights on what's happening in that space and some of the things that people could, could start to think differently about as they look at deploying the technology to the edge and, and bringing intelligence to the edge. Yeah, you know, it's been such an interesting journey because the, you know, Edge has been just slowly encroaching on us and growing over the past, I don't know what, 10 years more, I'm sure. Um, but I, I remember back when I was in Intel IT and we were talking about um, location-based services for just finding things around our campuses. I mean, Intel's 100,000 people. We have these massive factories. We've got huge office buildings and we move about them all the time. Again, these are pre-COVID times. And the thought was by some people, oh, that's so far out there. Who would ever need a location-based service? Just walk around and find a map. 
Well, guess what? It turns out a lot of people quite like that convenience of knowing what's around them and near them. And if you think even just, uh, don't forget about a business perspective, think a consumer experience about how demanding we are that we get a result right away. Where is that Starbucks? And so you start to apply that on top of business services and you see there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for delivery of new capabilities and the improvements that they can deliver can be, again, as benign as the get me my coffee customer consumer experience, or they can be very real impacts that improve lives. And you start to think of better traffic flow and management, literally shaving off hours, minutes, hours, days that people need to spend in their car because of the ability to more smartly, more accurately, more immediately manage those types of services. So when we look at what people are trying to do and our customers are trying to do with their edge services, we're viewing it from the requirements that we need to deliver to, and we bucket them into that reduction in application latency, which I've talked about a lot, just how quickly can you get that response back? The improvement in the quality of the experience, which can have to do with the latency. It can also have to do with the security of it, the um, personalization, the you know data storage. So all of that can play into that. Optimization of the total cost of ownership. So I said there's a lot of Xeon going in at the edge. There's also a lot of our you know Movidius products. There's a lot of our um, client products, our core products going into the edge. Which ones deliver the best total cost of ownership? And not just from a hardware perspective, but from the hardware and the software stack that you require to be effective. And then, of course, complying just with the data locality requirement. At times, there may even be a use case where you would prefer to send the data back to the data center, but um, it's just, it just doesn't work for the rules or the laws that you right. may be working in. When we think about this broad challenge that we're talking about, particularly accelerating uh, analytics and, and, and how AI is being applied to these spaces, you know, hardware itself is, I guess, the foundation broadly, but there's no surprise that nothing really happens without developers and software. And I, I wonder if we can maybe just delve into what you're doing around this space, particularly giving developers and data scientists the tools they need to actually take advantage of some of the Intel hardware that you're bringing to the market now. You know, the developer environment has always been one that's important to us just because they're such a great area for us to learn from. You know, we get tremendous amount of feedback about what should go into the next generation of products. And then they are our gateway to the applications and to the the performance uh, that we have there. And so, or and that we want to deliver there, I should really say. And so when we look at developers, we try to have the opportunities to, you know, approach them from, again, that entire stack, I'll say, starting at the hardware for the developers that want to program very specifically down to the hardware level and offering the right math kernel libraries and the might the right access to pull the most out of very specific and focused development efforts. Then you we move up the stack and we offer different types of optimizations. Like I talked a little bit about OpenVINO as an open source inference engine that allows you to better tie your hardware together and get results. I talked about our one API, which is what we would call a unified toolkit that gives our uh, developer audience and our customers this kind of unified experience across all the AI products in our portfolio 
portfolio. It's open source. It, it's built on top of popular standards and translators. And so they have the, that one-stop shop to go. And then we have stuff that's done all the way up at the you know application and the API layer for those that really, they don't really want to touch the hardware at all. And in fact, and I know this is just puts all of us at Intel aghast, they don't even care (laughs) about what the hardware is. So while we get super excited about it, they just want the experience. And so we've tried to evolve our developer strategy to address all of those different layers of the uh, of the cake, if you will, so that each type of developer has a, a, a point where they can come in and engage with Intel and get the service and capability that they need for their application and their customer experience they're trying to deliver. Indeed, one of the things that really strikes me is that, you know, historically we've had to build a lot of these capabilities from ground up ourselves in, in code base, build our own libraries, build our own APIs, and then code it as well. And I think, you know, the reality is that not every customer is interested in that build-it-yourself AI analytics, uh, and especially as it uh, diffuses away from the data science specialities that we we want to focus our, our resources on and, and, uh, and, and more to the IT generalists. Uh, and Intel's known as a hardware platform provider. I mean, are you doing it? Can you sort of share some insights on what you're doing to sort of, I guess, ease that burden on IT leaders to help them stand up productive AI and analytics solutions faster without having to actually write the platforms themselves? Yeah. You know, we obviously serve quite a, a wide breadth of customers from cloud service providers that have solutions expertise out to small business that's looking for a much more ready to go solution. So we have invested over the past several years in what we call Intel Select Solutions. And really, this is us working within our ecosystem to remove some of that burden from our customers and allow them to more easily make choices around the hardware infrastructure that they need to deliver the the best experience. And so these are verified and configurations of hardware and software that the ultimate goal is for a customer, they reduce the amount of time that needs to be spent in running qual cycles and testing. And so it then therefore accelerates the time to deployment. And then the other thing about them is it's not just about how quickly you can get to use it or the reducing the the friction in deployment. It's also about delivering performance. So we have hardware, um, we work with a OS or an application provider, but if we don't do work, you'll get a good out-of-box experience. But if we do work together, you'll get a great out-of-box experience. So working with the ISVs, working with the OS vendors and saying, hey, here's all the instruction acceleration we have built into the hardware. If we make these tweaks to the software and we work really closely together on this, you're going to be able to deliver your customers and a performance benefit that is above and beyond or outsized from what just the pure silicon alone would deliver. And so we've been adding to our portfolio continuously over the past couple of years, working again with the ecosystem and some of our newest ones are, you know, we've got solutions for SAP HANA, we've got Microsoft SQL Server ones, we've got Nutanix hyperconverged infrastructure, um, and these are all being offered out through our system vendors and our OEM partners as well. As a final question, I'm really keen to see where you see AI and analytics in particular going over the next decade with the power that Intel's bringing to the market with the likes of the new third generation uh, Xeon scalable processor. What do you think is coming over the horizon for us in this whole space of AI and analytics over the next decade? And where do you see it taking us? 
Well, what I like about predictions is you start out with the confidence knowing they're going to be wrong. So you could just have that freedom to, <laughs> to <laughs> have a little embrace. bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think this, we've talked about the transformation of data and the transformative power of it. I just think if you think back 10 years about the personalization and the services that um, businesses and consumers required, it looks nothing like it does today. And it's all happened uh, almost gradually so that um, you, you look back and you can't even believe that's how things used to get done. And I think we're on that continued accelerating pace. So the use cases for what people will think of to do with AI to make lives better, to reduce friction in transactions, to increase capabilities will just continue to grow. I mean, so many companies solve problems we didn't even know we had. But as part of that, data deluge is very real. There is so much out there in the world being created every single second. And I think we'll see a move towards how to be even more um, effective and predictive and useful while requiring less data. And I'm hoping for a wave of continued focus on privacy and data governance so that we have the ability to enjoy these benefits and still, you know, maintain that uh, sense of self and that ability to um, deliver it with not quite so many parameters being, you know, collected or required for it. I think that will continue to evolve quite a lot. And I think the data scientists, the algorithm development will continue to see, you know, focus and, and pressure in that space. Wow. Well, we're definitely uh, set for a very exciting decade. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to hear uh, uh, some of the personal insights from your own life and background and career path, but also some of the amazing things you're bringing to the market. And congratulations again on the amazing initiatives that you've brought to the world with regard to the response to COVID-19 and the global pandemic. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and I hope to catch up with you in person soon and maybe get you on camera for another conversation. All right. Thank you, Des. Great chatting with you.